to The Learning Curve. This is Gerard Robinson, and I'm glad to be joined by my co-host, Kara. How are you? I'm well, Gerard. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Right now, I'm actually looking outside of my window, and I see several parents running, and I see children behind them. I'm just not sure if they're trying to run away from their kids uh, because they need a break, or if this is uh, P.E. for the families. It's both, but it's primarily um, it's primarily that they're running away from their children. <laughs> exactly, and I'm waiting to I see mean, the a runner myself. <laughs> waiting to see the spouse run the other way. Uh, so, you know, this is going to have a very interesting impact up on uh, uh, marriages and other kind of relations that people have in under rules now. Yeah, I, I got to tell you, it's um, yep, it's. It's a learning experience. It feels like, I felt like last week we were all sort of like, oh, okay, you know what, this is going to be okay, and we're going to have a routine, and this is how it's going to work. And this week, myself and everybody I talk to when I have my, you know, Zoom cocktail hour with my with my mommy friends, <laughs> it's sort of like, okay, guys, um, I wasn't really prepared for this. It's like, now you feel like you've been living in it for a month. Um, I, too, I'm definitely, I'm not running away from my kids. My kids are, they're they're being as good as they probably can. Um, but it's important to get out there and get exercise. We, we actually, we had a snowstorm up here in Boston really? last week. Oh, couldn't believe it. I think it was last week. The weeks are all blurring. Maybe it was this week. Um, and now it's beautiful and sunny outside and, and at least the kids can sort of ride their bikes a bit. Um, but you know, we're just hoping that everybody's taking care of one another or folks who might be living alone at this point in time. We got all make sure we're taking care of our colleagues, our friends, our loved ones, reaching out, making sure that the social distance is bridged in, in any way we can, right? And as the name of our show, The Learning Curve, says, we're currently in a learning curve in ways we did not expect even seven weeks ago. Speaking of learning curve, talk to us about uh, the story of the week. <laughs> okay, so this one is just it's awesome. So we have, um, we will, you know, we're going to have a, a pretty great columnist, Jay Matthews on in a little bit, and he's got some heavy hitting stuff, but this one is from in the note.com title. Uh, this is thank you, Megan Greenwald for this article. Boy hilariously roasts mom's homeschooling in journal entry. And I'm just gonna, I'm just going to this poor mother. Her name is Candace and her son, Ben, eight years old, uh, quote, wrote a savage journal entry about the whole experience of Candace's homeschooling. So we're just going to, I'm going to read to you this excerpt from, um, from Ben's journal. It's phenomenal. It's about home ed school. So H O M E D school. And it says, <laughs> it is not going good. My mom's getting stressed out. My mom is getting really confused. <laughs> we took a break so my mom can figure this stuff out. I'm telling you, it is not going good. Now, a couple things here, Gerard. I want to <laughs> congratulate Ben for complete sentences and periods at the end of sentences. We could dissect a little bit more about that, as I'm sure Candace is doing. But I think just every parent out there who is trying to take the place of the teachers who know what they're doing <laughs> is, is appreciating this right now. And my own daughter has basically told me that, um, you know, she can't, she can't learn math because um, even Khan Academy doesn't teach it in the way that she wants to learn it, to which I thought to myself, well, we're a little entitled, aren't we? But... <laughs> 
<laughs> this is this is where going, and I think this is just the little laugh that we all need right now. Look, a look at our own fallibility. Um, are you are you homeschooling? Your kids are schooling themselves, I bet. So I would not call it homeschooling because I want to respect the people who actually do it. Uh, we have our kids at home and they're going through a schooling process. And the great thing is uh, the teachers from our school, um, they make themselves available uh, at least once a day to have either a Zoom or Skype conversation with the students. They communicate through email. My wife and I add in where we can, but we're trying to keep uh, as much normalcy as possible. But the reality is our girls in no way want us to be their teachers. They love their teachers and they want to keep us as the feeders and the people who take care of them, but they don't want us as their teachers. So we're we're at home schooling. Yeah, I like yeah. that. That's a that's a good learning. That's a good learning curve for me, Gerard. I like the way you put that because certainly those who do homeschool uh, every single day and make the very conscientious and you know it's a, it's a big choice to make. And we're all those of us who do not are all learning what a big um, choice it is, even to just try and ensure that some sort of learning is going on when you are. Um, engaging in schooling while at home. Um, so, and, and the other thing I would say to this is let's not forget, I too have appreciated how much my kids' school have been able to stay in touch with the kids in various ways, um, reaching out. And and I just keep thinking, you know, the thing is our teachers are very much in the same position as the rest of us as working parents. So mm-hmm. they're trying to continue the learning while at home, many of them taking care of their own families. Um, and that's something that, that we all need to remember um, and and appreciate about the folks who who are normally educating our children in school. Um, and we've got another story of the week here too, which I think is is related because uh, if we're spending some time appreciating uh, various types of schooling and the various you know me- delivery mechanisms for schooling, this is a pretty good one about um, the voucher schools in Wisconsin. And I I like it because it's highlighting, um, you know, some of the different things that private schools are doing. So we have to remember, right, that districts, certainly districts are doing some great and innovative things. Um, A lot of the times they're going to have a little bit more scale, which could come with with more resources. I don't know that it necessarily comes with more preparedness. I don't think any of us were really prepared for what what happened as quickly as it did. But um, this highlights some schools in Milwaukee and sort of the different approaches that they're taking. Um, and remember, so these voucher schools in Milwaukee serve, Milwaukee's um, Parental Choice Program serves kids from families of lower socioeconomic status as well as families of more moderate socioeconomic status. But uh, kids can opt into the voucher program if they qualify and attend a private school. And, you know, it, this is just outlining sort of the fact that some private schools are doing one-to-one using Zoom. Others are sort of still getting it up and running. Others are using an approach where, you um, it sounds like they're a little bit more trying to recreate the school day. But this article that I really love actually was probably a radio story from WUWM.com in Milwaukee's NPR, um, just highlighting the fact that we've got a lot of sort of smaller schools boutique schools that are also having to do this work without the scale of a lot of the districts that our kids might be in. Um, and so interesting read. I would absolutely recommend it as we, as we keep all types of schools top of mind right now, right? What did you think of this one, Gerard? Well, I'm of course close to this story because I lived in Milwaukee for two years uh, when I was a fellow Gerard, at the- where have you not lived? <laughs> In fact, when I tell my stories, uh, someone would say, where's Waldo? 
or where's Gerard? <laughs> and so this it, it, is another Waldo moment. <laughs> yeah, I was a senior fellow at the Institute for the Transformation of Learning at Marquette University uh, and uh, worked with Dr. Howard Fuller, uh, who at the time uh, founded a uh, charter school, the CEO Academy, which today is a charter school. But this article brought back fond memories for me. Um, the St. Marcus Lutheran School, for example, you know, I know the leadership there. Uh, I was there in the city when they were first starting. You know, they're serving 900 students. Uh, I think about uh, St. Anthony uh, as well, very large school in the city. Uh, I think of Mesmer Catholic High School. So these were schools where I knew the leadership, parents, students, and teachers. And they're having the same challenges as their public school uh, peers in Milwaukee, uh, Milwaukee just across the board for school-aged children is, is, a, is, a, is a city with a lot of economic and social challenges. And the private schools in part were created to help address some of those. So the fact that they're, uh, you know, doing what they can often with less resources than in public school peers, but nonetheless using their faith-based mission uh, across faith traditions to say, even though the school is closed, education remains open. And what I was reminded about this story uh, goes back to, you know, the early founding of the nation. Think of the 1787 Northwest Ordinance, where it talked about schools and the means of education shall forever be encouraged. And if at any point, what I'm taking away from this article at this time is that while we're talking about the closure of schools, the means of education are continuing. And I think that's uh, something the uh, schools in Milwaukee and in, in the Milwaukee Parental Choice Program are showing us right now. Yeah. And let's say, I mean, and to be sure that the means of education continue, I think one of the things uh, that's top of mind for a lot of people right now is ensuring that private schools survive, right? So we know that during the last recession, um, we lost so many Catholic schools, many of which were serving kids who, um, who, who chose those schools because they were better fit for them than other schools. And many of these schools were, were serving kids who couldn't pay tuition. So they were finding ways to either lower tuition or uh, or not charge tuition to, to students at all. And I think this is a really challenging moment for some private schools as they think about, you know, the families they serve, many of whom may be losing their jobs, um, think about whether or not they'll be able to continue to operate in the way that they have while paying teachers. They may not be able to recoup their tuition for the rest of the year. Um, it's a it's, It can be a really frightening time, and I hope that we'll all keep not just district schools, we should certainly keep all of our schools on our radar. We should keep all kids on our radar. And in that, thinking about the challenges that might be unique to some of these private schools, um, I was relieved to see in the federal relief package that we expect to be go ahead um, mm-hmm. that there that there are some provisions that w- that will help private schools. But I think that you know, um, for those of us for whom this is a really important issue, we need to keep pushing around the edges in a couple of ways. And one is just ensuring that we're bringing these issues to the fore. And the other one is thinking about what are those mechanisms going forward? I mean, you've written a book about education scholarship accounts, about education savings accounts, right? What Mm -hmm. are those mechanisms going forward that we can use to ensure that, um, private schools in many places are protected a little bit more and maybe with some government funds or whatever the mechanism is. Um, we assume that our district schools are going to be protected, but we can't always make that assumption for our private schools in these times, even though many private schools are serving some of our most vulnerable kids and families. In fact, you bring up a good point about ESAs. Um, our colleague, uh, 
at the at Heritage. Uh, yeah, Lindsay Burke. Yep. She has a really good article as well as a tweet about the role that ESAs can play right now in this moment across the board, even in states where ESAs may not exist. Yeah, I think I think the time is the time is absolutely right. And we can we, I hope I hope we'll all be pushed to even expand our own notions of what ESAs can do, uh, meaning serving even more students, whether that's in, in private provider settings, public settings. I think there's there's a lot here that we can learn and we can really force the conversation in a new and different way. And absolutely, Lindsay's contributing to that. So fantastic. So we've got a great guest coming up. We're going to be talking to Jay Matthews of the Washington Post right after this. Welcome back. This week we have Jay Matthews. You all know him. He's an education columnist for the Washington Post and WashingtonPost.com. His column appears once a week. He's been with the Post for 49 years, is the author of nine books, including five about high schools and the New York Times bestseller, Work Hard, Be Nice, about the birth and growth of the KIPP Charter School Network. He's the biographer of Jaime Escalante, the most influential U.S. teacher of the, 40 year, of the last 40 years, many say. His latest book, Question Everything, explores the nation's largest college prep program, AVID. Jay, welcome to The Learning Curve. We're really excited to have you with us today. Hi, Kara. <laughs> okay. So, okay, we obviously, given where we're at right now, um, you've been writing about education for so long. You're one of the keenest observers of what's going on. I mean, we, we all love reading your work and getting your take on U.S. education across the board. I mean, we're in an unprecedented time, and I think it would be, we, we've got a lot to talk about with you, but we'd be remiss not to ask about what's your sense of this moment, of where we're at, of the preparedness or lack of preparedness, and what do you think that this moment that we're in, and I'm speaking about for those of you who are listening a year from now, I hope, um, we're in the midst of uh, most of the nation quarantined due to the coronavirus and COVID-19. Um, where's this going to take us, do you think? Well, I, I was born uh, in 1945, the year World War II ended. That was a huge story for the whole world. I don't think there have been any stories since as big, as much of an influence on the whole planet as this one. So I'm not prepared for it. I, I hope it goes away as soon as possible. It clearly is doing no good for American education. Uh, a lot of, I think it, the one thing, good thing that it will do is to remind parents and others who are interested in schools how important it is to have our kids in a classroom with a lively teacher who is taking them through the steps of all the things they have to learn. Uh, you know, my grandsons and my grandsons have come over frequently in the last couple of weeks. Their school is closed. Uh, I've had other friends who've got them. I've seen the results of some of the efforts that schools make to keep in touch with their students. There just isn't much learning going on. I don't think there can be. You know, I'm, I'm reminded of, um, of uh, John Holt, who was a frustrated private uh, primary school uh, teacher in the 1970s who started something called the unschooling movement. And he was a very yeah. nice man. His argument was if you just let kids go home and do anything they wanted to do, they would learn in a natural way. And he was thinking about, you know, kids in farms who could do the chores or kids whose parents worked in the shop. That just doesn't work very well in the modern world. And uh, I, I am, the more I see about what's going on with schools without teachers uh, in place in classrooms, 
the more I'm grateful to the great teachers we've got. I saw just the day of the week before my grandsons were sent home, a uh, fifth grade uh, presentation on the American Revolutionary War, which was just mind-bogglingly wonderful. It was a combination of, of uh, family feud and uh, jeopardy and uh, <laughs> local pep team exercise. They all, they were all these fifth graders. They were all in costume. My grandson was um, uh, playing Tom Paine. They gave speeches. They, they, uh, uh, they sh- mimicked battles. They had cheers. They were grown into three teams, the, the rebels and the, and the um, Tories and the British Army. Uh, it was amazing. And they had, there was a lively teacher who had put this together who was having a great, as great a time as her students. So that told me what great potential there is and what great joy you can find in schools and how deadened are our schools today. Yeah, I, I mean, and I think I, I couldn't agree more. It's I, I'm as a parent, and I know I've had these conversations with lots of friends. Um, I like to think I was a teacher, and I like to think that I greatly appreciate teachers. But boy, you know, we, we've had an ongoing conversation in this country about how we value teachers, and I think that uh, most people are valuing them a lot more highly now than they have in the past, and understanding the incredibly hard work that it is, and that some people are very gifted in. To your point, ensuring that learning's going on and that and that children are engaged. Um, I have to say, uh, to the point about unschooling, I've, I've tried to engage my children in some, you know, mild child labor in the backyard here, and uh, there's not much learning going on there either. It's, it's, we're getting a little work done, uh, so that's a, so that's a good thing. Um, but Jay, you know, you have written so so much over the years, and one of the big questions. So you said, you know, you said so. There's not much learning happening right now, and we're going to just say we're just watching as schools ex- and states and districts extend these closures. So uh, if we're lucky enough to go back to school this year, we're going to have lost a great chunk of time. And one of the big things on, on the minds of policymakers, parents, students, principals, state departments is, well, what are we going to do about the test, right? And I think that some people are thinking this could be uh, a death knell for testing, which would mean a death knell for accountability as we know it. And I'm really curious to get your take on um, on how this changes the game in terms of how we've been thinking about holding schools and districts accountable for student outcomes. I've covered this argument a lot, and it's really not an argument for and against tests. The anti-testing people, uh, almost to a man, don't want to get rid of all standardized tests. They know that in a democracy, you need some uh, trusted proof that kids are learning something in school. They just would like fewer tests than we have. I think there's a, something, a point to that. But my, my strong view is that there are some tests that are so enlivening and so deep and so useful to the system that they should be protected, uh, particularly the advanced placement in international baccalaureate tests in high school. I think are the best thing that's happened to American high schools in the last 20 or 30 years because they are the only courses you can take in high school which end with a major exam which is not written and not graded by your teacher. If you're a sweet kid who always does what she's told, you're not going to get an extra grade on that test because the person who grades it doesn't know you. And the tests are three, sometimes five hours long, so you get a sense in high school of what college is going to be like. And like, and you gain a respect for the work that has to go into to being challenged in that way. And we've got 
what, uh, the one thing that's happened that I was pleased by is the advanced place placement. People decided to keep their exam, give it an important form, just 45 minutes, just free response questions to all the AP students who wanted to take it this year, this spring. Uh, and that's a brave thing because it, it, again, underlines the fact that it is the test in that system is something you want to teach to. It's that very yeah. same thing with IB, unfortunately, canceled their test. The guy who runs AP is named Trevor Packer. Uh, he was 33 when he got the job. He'd never had any teaching experience. He's been there for almost 20 years. He's a genius. He's managed to take this system, which used when he got started running the AP program, only 9% of uh, kids who took the AP exams were low income. Now that figure is over 20%. And that's, he's done that by doing the things that happened at Garfield High School, which I wrote a lot about. Taking, not assuming that every kid whose parent didn't go to college is not able to learn something at a high college level. That's absolutely revolutionized uh, the way high school is run. It's not nearly as, gone as far as it should, but I think that's a test that we should uh, be glad we have. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so you mentioned you mentioned um, Garfield High School that you've written a lot about. So I'd, I'd love to ask you some questions about that. So in your book, Escalante, The Best Teacher in America, you um, you talk about, I hope I'm pronouncing it right, Jaime Escalante? Exactly right. I'm like, I've seen the movie, but it felt like a long time ago. Um, and and you, you talk about his story teaching in East L.A. and and how he inspired a generation of urban school educators and reformers. And, and I'd love to get your take. So you're talking about how we've increased access to great things like AP, which can be a huge tool for kids. Um, but we still, as you've written about at length, we still have, and even in this comparatively very wealthy country, a hard time teaching a lot of kids, especially those that we would classify as at risk. Um, and math in particular continues to be a real struggle. Uh, what, what have you learned about that? Well, uh, I have a theory about this, which I don't think any research can prove or disprove. I think the problem here is, in general is that our, our teachers, American teachers, are such wonderful people who uh, decide they're going to do a career teaching kids whom they love uh, and uh, not, being, make, not making much money for that. They are so such good people that when it comes to a point where they have to choose whether to challenge a kid, give him a, har- give him a harder assignment, a harder exam, something that's going to push him, or not, they're often saying, oh, this is going to be too much for that kid. And if you weigh, if you add that, that humane feeling to our national bias, uh, that expects kids from ho- uh, from homes where there aren't any college graduates not to do very well, then you get a real problem. Uh, what was what was uh, the, the the movie people may have seen Stand and Liver? That's movie's now thirty years old, so it may be hard to remember. But it was about you're dating me. <laughs> this, this teacher who um, went into a school that was eighty five percent low income kids in East Los Angeles and produced kids who passed. Um, there were 14 kids who passed the AP calculus exam one year. They were accused of cheating on it. They went back and took the test again and proved that they knew the, the material in a heavily proctored exam. Uh, and it was a wonderful movie, very well done. But I think the best part of the movie for me that was the very end where you see Jaime Escalante walking down the school hall. And at the bottom, it tells you, well, they had... Uh, 18 AP tests given uh, that year, and then there was 36 the next year, and then there were 75 the next year. Uh, the, 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 the fact that I unearthed five years later, 
1987, watching that program was that in that year, that one school produced 26% of all the Mexican-American children in the country who passed wow. an AP calculus wow. exam. Uh, that, that's unheard of. That one school and a, a quarter of all the kids in the whole country who passed AP calculus were from that school. Um, and and, the, and the, what, what transpired to get us from the end of the movie to that point was, tells you a lot about how schools work, particularly even that one. Uh, the brilliant principal of that school made Jaime Escalante the chairman of the math department uh, when he became famous. And he, for five years, uh, he made decisions about who was going to teach what course. He made sure he not only taught calculus, but he taught um, algebra and geometry, and I think he also had a trigonometry course. So if, one, so he could make sure those kids were ready with good teaching for calculus, and second, so he could keep an eye on the other teachers in his department, some of whom he thought were good and some of whom he thought were not so good, and the ones that were not so good. Uh, he moved down to, you know, um, basic math. He was, very, he was very unpopular in his department, um, not only because of that, but because he never went to, to teacher meetings. He never uh, lunched in the school cafeteria with teachers. He was in his classroom all the time. And by, by putting the whole department under that kind of pressure, he was build up, able to build up a momentum for math and eventually leading that many kids to take and pass AP calculus. So they had, I think they had 170 kids pass AP calculus in 1970, which is just amazing. I'm sorry, in 19, and do my math right, in 1987. That's amazing. Jay, this is Gerard. As I hear you tell your story, I think about uh, my own uh, time as a kid in Los Angeles in the 70s and 80s uh, going to school. Um, I'm one of the kids you referenced. I lived in a home with two parents. Uh, neither one of them were college graduates. Uh, I, in fact, finished high school without ever taking algebra. And I knew the challenges that came along with not having that. So Escalante's story to many African-Americans uh, in our part of Los Angeles, we would say, well, if they're doing it at their school, why can we do it at our school? But that's another story. But this aligns with something you just mentioned about uh, the profession itself. So from what you know, do you think today that schools of education have embraced Escalante's vision of math instruction? I think they have not. Uh, I think it's really hard to break through that culture, as you know. Um, and, you know, there, there, we, people say, well, we just teach math differently, made it more, you know, ex uh, constructivist, more appealing to students. Uh, there was a, was a great experiment done. I wrote a book about uh, Equity 2000, something done by the College Board in the 90s. Mm -hmm. which they, they, they didn't say anything about making this the course is better. They just made sure every ninth grader in the seven um, pilot programs that did this, every ninth grader in those high schools would take Algebra One in the ninth grade. And that was a huge step forward. And they discovered over the six years that they were funding this program that there were more, in the end, there were more uh, kids passing Algebra One in ninth grade than took it at the beginning of the experiment. Um, and so it, I think it shows you that if you have the gumption in a school or a school system to uh, throw away the assumption that the kids from certain backgrounds are going to just be overwhelmed by a difficult subject, give it to them, and most particularly support them with great teaching, then you're going to make progress that you would not make before. So you've got an example 
uh, of it working, of saying, let's just go beyond the rules. Do you think that there's more fear to do that in 2020 because of testing and or do you still think that there is the soft bigotry theme in our system? We still think other people's children can't learn. Uh, I think that we still have the soft bigotry, but I think it is receding uh, not quickly, but steadily. I've done, for the last 20 years, I've, I've done an annual list of the most challenging high schools in the country based on which schools have the highest participation in advanced placement or international baccalaureate tests. And um, uh, I, I rate each school that makes, reaches a certain a minimum standard gets on the list, and that standard is having at least half of your juniors and half of your seniors take one AP or one IB course and test. And that seems to be a modest standard. But, and, but, the, but the, the change has been interesting. In 1998, when I first did it, I could only find 143 schools, high schools in the United States that met that standard. Uh, 22 years later, there are now 2,500 who make that standard. And that's, that seems like a, it's a lot more, but it's still only 12% of all high schools in the country give at least half of their juniors and half of their seniors an AP or an, an IB test. And I think the capacity for students is much greater than that. And if it, certainly if, it, if what happened at Garfield could happen with kids who are almost all low-income Hispanic kids, uh, if we keep that in mind, we could go much further than we have. I look forward to reading uh, U.S. News and World Report's ranking of the top public high schools. And within that conversation, there's debates about magnet schools, charters, and traditional uh, public high schools. But what's interesting is one of my uh, AEI colleagues, Nat, Nat Malkus, what he identified is that whether you were public, charter, public high school, or public magnet, some of the top schools had one thing in common. They offered AP courses. And so it's, yep. uh, it's in a line with what you're saying. So very good. I mean, I think that there are five things you need to do that I found in all the great schools, certainly Garfield and the Kipps schools and some of the, the very strong uh, public schools. You know, Northern Virginia, you were the uh, education secretary in Virginia. You know, Northern Virginia, 10, 20 years ago, decided they were going to uh, cut out any barriers to kids taking AP or IB. If you wanted to take an AP course or an IB course, you were in, and you didn't have to pay fees for the test. All of Northern Virginia did that, and the results are obvious. And we've seen that happening in Houston and L.A. So it's spreading. It's just not getting beyond the 12% of schools I've found so far. Jay, I'm really wondering, too, about about what else you're seeing beyond, you know, um, uh, holding kids to this high bar, having them take AP tests. So you've written, for example, about KIPP, and we don't need to talk about, about KIPP alone. There are a lot of, you know, phenomenal schools, whether they're charters, charter networks, some some you know, district schools are doing a great job. Um, but is there, what do you see especially when you when you study a school or an organization intensely, beyond sort of the offerings, um, uh, curricular offerings or AP tests and such, that you feel is really helping deliver these amazing results? That's a great question, and I've thought about it a lot. And my views have not changed. What I discovered was happening in Garfield is also happening in lots of other successful schools I've visited and written books about in the last 20 years. First, you need high expectations, and that's, of course, part of setting the, uh, getting rid of uh, barriers to taking things like AP. You have high expectations for every child. You know that that child is going to do much better if you give them the kind of uh, uh, ex- uh, backing that they need. So high expectations is number one. Number two is more time to learn. 
Um, in some of the best charter schools, as you know, the, the school day is one or two hours longer than it is in regular schools. At Garfield, Jaime Escalante created his extra time by having kids come in from 3 to 6 in the afternoon uh, to study more. And he had Saturday sessions. He had, had summer sessions. But the extra time is number two. I think it's incredibly important. Number three, a team spirit. You have to be running a school and a classroom as if everybody's in this together. You know, exercises in which you have com competitions. Um, Jaime Escalante would play uh, Queens. We are the champions in his classrooms at the beginning of every session. And they pound on their desk, and they would be ready to go as a team um, to c conquer whatever subject they had to conquer. Um, fourth for me is having a great principal who has the power to hire and fire teachers. Uh, I think that's really important, and some Amen. have it, some don't. <laughs> and, and last, it has to be fun and imaginative. You have to give teachers and principals the power to uh, go try do new stuff. If you have put all those together, I have yet to find a school that was working that didn't have all those elements. Do you do you hold out any hope? So, right, we're in this we're in this moment where um, everybody's thinking about how do I do online learning at the very least? How do I do blended learning? We know that there are some organizations that do it very well, but many of the things you just named, you know, creating the sense of a team, having a singular school leader, probably I'm guessing who's who's visible, right? Um, Escalante was visible to his kids. Do you hold out any hope? that that is something that we will figure out how to recreate as as this country, as the world probably, moves toward a style of learning that if we're honest, w coronavirus or not, we were probably going to be moving towards leveraging technology more and more anyway. Do you think that we'll find a way to recreate those things or will we have to be looking for different levers to pull? I, 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 I think it would be good if we appreciated the power of that kind of creativity and appreciated the power of more time and higher expectations. But I see in both charter schools and regular public schools all over the country uh, experiences that have been started by teachers, in some cases parents, that are going blazes. I live in Pasadena, California. There is an, there's a middle school here where a couple of parents started an advanced uh, math program that started in fifth grade. They now have regularly kids passing AP calculus in the eighth grade at that school, and they're going on to the local high school and taking uh, college math courses. Um, there's there are school there's a school in um, uh, in in in, Pencil, in Pennsylvania where kids can take as many AP courses as they want. They don't uh, go to school for all of them. Some of them they learn on themselves, but they eliminated that barrier even for kids who want to take 20 during a time and they've eliminated all kinds of barriers for kids to you know choose their teachers to uh, choose their schedules these are kind of radical experience but that that those are popping up all over and then when you see the most uh, rigorous and 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 successful charters such as the uncommon schools uh, in New York New Jersey the idea schools in Texas, the basis schools, which are growing out of Arizona. And those are places which not only open AP to all, and particularly an idea and um, basis, but require kids, and then an idea, these are low-income kids from the San, uh, Rio Grande Valley, require kids to take six or seven AP courses before they get out of high school. Uh, you would think that would crush kids, uh, but... That's not the way it works. If they've common schools, they've taken it a step further. They produce these curriculums for their courses, including AP, which are so precise in the amount of time that is used and so 
uh, strong in training teachers that they have now passing rates in the uncommon schools on AP, which are as good as you find in suburban schools where all the, most of the kids are from affluent families. So, Jay, if you had an opportunity to talk to your 18-year-old self with all the knowledge you have to date about K-12 education, what would you say? Oh, um, I, I think uh, I would be uh, ple- I would I would be somewhat annoyed that it's going to take as long as it's going to take <laughs> to uh, get to the situation. I, mean, I was 37 years old when I met Jaime Escalani, and I spent the last half of my career working on this stuff. But I think it's it it it. it I wish things moved more quickly. I wish people appreciated uh, what was going on. I still get a sense. Of from the outside of such schools, what I got at Garfield, where I would tell parents my story about how all these low-income kids are are just scoring so highly in in, in um, calculus, and they would say, you know, that well, you know, they probably just feed them through a full a lot of facts, and they can get enough facts there to pass the AP exam, but they're not really gaining the conceptual understanding. And I tried that that explanation on the professors at Harvey Mudd and Caltech and and USC who were getting some of these Escalante kids, they just laughed at that. I mean, it's, there's still a sense that kids from certain background cannot do certain stuff, and we have to keep pounding on that. It's, it's receding, but it's receding too slowly for my taste. Yeah, very well put. I think sometimes it's just um, flies under the radar using different language, and 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 sometimes it's it's what we what we don't say that says the most. I think, um, Jay, thank you so much for being with us this week. I think this is I can personally say it's exciting for me. I know it's going to be exciting for our listeners. We appreciate you. We look to you, and we hope to have you. Uh, hope to have you back sometime. So thanks for being with us this week, um, listeners. This has been Jay Matthews of the Washington Post. Thank you for. Being with us. Thank you, Kara. Thank you, Gerard. Thank you. Welcome back. Here is the tweet of the week, and it comes from The Guardian on March 22nd, 2020. Be careful. Spain's last 1918 flu survivor offers warning on coronavirus. Jose Pena, who's 105, is watching on anxiously as a new pandemic sweeps the globe. He was four years old in 1918 when his small fishing town in northern Spain uh, was hit by a deadly pandemic. More than a century later, uh, he's believed to be Spain's only living survivor of the pandemic. And it was the deadliest in human history, uh, killing uh, nearly between 50 to 100 million people worldwide. And when asked about this, again, he said, be careful. He said, I do not want to see the same thing repeated. It claimed so many lives. Glad for his wisdom. Yeah. And just more encouragement to take care of one another. And it's, if you're feeling well, it's not about you necessarily, right? It's about, it's about everybody else, especially those who are most vulnerable. Well, thank you, Gerard. Always love spending time with you. We are going to just have to plug next week's guest. You know him, Tim Keller, Senior Attorney, Institute for Justice. Very excited to talk to Tim. He's a man who's with his finger on the pulse of, uh, just about everything in my experience and always, always great stuff to say. So Gerard, until next week, stay safe, uh, get some good takeout, 
you know, um, and, and, and go for some nice walks around and don't, don't run away too far from your kids. I'm going to try not to. <laughs> or my wife, but she's listening now. <laughs> yeah, you better, you better be careful, my friends. Let, let me tell you, I've met your wife. She's formidable. So <laughs> good luck. <laughs> All right. Take care. All right. Have a great one. Bye-bye. Bye.